Well, how about we pray as we come to God's word? Heavenly Father, it's so encouraging to see so many people gathering uh, in Canberra under your word. Uh, Lord, as we come and gather under your word right now, Lord, we pray for them and for us that you'd be working by your spirit through your word, shaping us, molding us, growing us more and more like Jesus and equipping us to live for him day by day. In his name we pray, amen. Well, on the 22nd of April, 2017, was a life-changing day for Angela and I. It was the day that we got married and our lives collided together that day for the rest of our lives. And if you really think about it, uh, it was a day of losses and gains for me and Angela. You'll have to ask for her side later. But what did I count as loss and what did I gain on that day? Well, on my losses column, I lost my me time, silence, peace and quiet in the house, hangouts with guy friends, uh, whether, it be, whether it be our famous meat parties, my house was even called Meet Gregor uh, for our meat dinners, computer games late into the night, early into the morning. Uh, if I was single, I'd probably be watching all the big FIFA World Cup games right now, including the ones at 1am. In my losses, a clean and tidy house. You wouldn't believe that I'm more cleaner than Angela. My independence and freedom to do whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted. The ability to watch my shows on TV or listen to the music that I like. We have to share that now, apparently. It might sound pretty miserable to put all those things as losses. Why would you want to get married? Now, some of you might be thinking, tread carefully, Josh. You might be sleeping outside tonight. But let me tell you, I've looked it up. France is playing at 1 a.m. and England at 5 a.m. But what I gained, honestly, truly, and sincerely on that day, what I gained was a lovely wife and bride to journey all our days, a godly, faithful, and caring, and loving sidekick and a partner in crime for life. Again, this is a gain. It's worth moving all of those things, all of those good things, into the loss column, the moment that we got married. All those things worth losing, worth seeing as less of value in light of gaining, calling Angela my wife and bride. Well, losses and gains. I think every decision, whether big or small, in a sense has a loss and gain equation. You lose something, you see it as bankrupt or lesser importance or value, and you gain something because it gives you more joy, satisfaction, it has more worth, value, it's better or more important. We often do this equation subconsciously, and we often do that intentionally too. And in today's passage, as Paul continues his letter to the Philippines, he picks up familiar themes on the way that we've seen all through the letter, and now he applies them to a different topic. 
and he uses this loss and gains equation, and he demonstrates what this means for a believer, for a follower of Jesus, for someone who's in Christ. But that later, because Paul begins not with the equation, but he begins with the tone of joy. If you have your Bibles open, it's great to follow. Uh, We're going to start at verse 1. Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. This idea of joy in Christ, it's been repeated all through the letter. And as Paul signals a new topic here in his word, finally, or furthermore, or preceding this, Paul points the Philippians yet again to rejoice in Jesus. And I think this is something that we all have to remember because it's so easy to get caught up in understanding the Bible correctly, in articulating the good news of Jesus correctly, and in living correctly, that we forget that there's so much to rejoice about. There's so much to rejoice about in being found in, saved by, and in knowing Jesus, knowing that we are people who have life. And that's worth rejoicing in Jesus about. Joyce's memorial service on Friday, it was marked by joy. I think it's pretty tough for Neville right now, but if you talk to him, he still has that tone of joy in Christ. You see, people of the gospel are people who are overflowing in joy for Jesus. And as Paul keeps going, he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. There's a bit of debate about what Paul is talking about here in this writing again. Uh, Is it about rejoicing? Or is it about what's to come in the false teachers in verse 2 and 3? I reckon it's both, because I think Paul's trying to say at the end here that joy in verse 1, is a safeguard against false teaching in verse 2 and 3. That loving Jesus and being found in the gospel so deeply that it produces and overflows in joy, that protects us from the false teaching that Paul goes on to talk about. You see, false teaching is not just bad theology. It's not just someone else's view. It's not just harmless, because even though it might feel that way, a gospel that's about works, about positive motivations, about a slightly different view of Jesus, a gospel that downplays sin and overemphasizes other things like experience and the Holy Spirit, it's not just bad teaching it actually steals joy. It takes people away from joy that is only found in Jesus. So Paul says to safeguard against false teaching, grow your joy in Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. Love Jesus. Cherish the good news of life in him. Find satisfaction in Christ. 
John Piper, he oozes joy in Christ in all of his books. He says this, the best news of the Christian gospel is that the supremely glorious creator of the universe has acted in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection to remove every obstacle between us and himself so that we may find everlasting joy in seeing and savoring his infinite beauty. So that we may find everlasting joy. So why does Paul point his audience to joy? What's the false teaching that they need a safeguard from? We'll have a look at verse 2. He's pretty brutal. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul warns against uh, false teachers. He says, look out for them. Be aware. Be on guard. Uh, These false teachers here are most likely Jews. Jewish people who are saying that Jesus isn't enough that you need to follow the law of Moses to be circumcised, to do all these other things, and then you'll be saved by God. And Paul, he uses irony to turn the tables on these false teachers. He calls them dogs. The Jews referred to Gentiles as dogs, unclean, not following the purity laws. But Paul says that it's These Jewish false teachers, they're the unclean ones. They were pushing an external thing where God is concerned about the heart. Then he calls them evildoers. Uh, These Jews had been calling Paul as one who was an evildoer, working evil in proclaiming this free gospel of Jesus But Paul says that they are the real evildoers here in adding to faith in Christ alone for salvation. And finally, he calls these false teachers mutilators, again turning their prized mark of circumcision and in light of the good news of life in Jesus, likening circumcision to a pagan ritual, like like what the prophets of Baal used to do, cutting themselves to get the attention of their God. And as Paul turns to reassure the Philippians, he continues the use of irony to show this. Verse 3, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He says, uh, since these false teachers were bringing up the topic of circumcision, Paul, he declares and he turns the tables and he says that the believers in Jesus are the true circumcision. They're the true people of God. The prophet Ezekiel talks about a future circumcision of the heart and this has been realized in Jesus because he has cleansed our hearts clean. You see, the true circumcision, the true people, the true group that's set apart from God, for God, they're not marked by uh, some fleshly outside quality. They're marked with worshipping by the Spirit of God, 
which is what Paul goes on to next. And this is another promise of Ezekiel that's realized in Jesus. And they also mark these believers in Jesus by giving glory in Jesus, the one who cleanses their hearts, makes, making them clean from the inside out. You see, Paul, he moves uh, to the topic, he moves the topic to the opposition uh, posed by these false teachers. And he says, find joy in Christ, verse 1. And then he says, look out, look out for these joy stealers, these people who are distorting the good news of life found in Jesus, people adding fleshly works to be saved, people leading you away from joy found in Christ Jesus alone. Well, as we keep going, Paul, he continues on this topic of confidence in the flesh, and he sets up almost a fight-off between himself and the false teachers who are troubling the Philippians. Verse 4 says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul, he says, I know a thing or two about confidence in the flesh. I know what these false teachers are talking about. And what we find here in these next verses, Paul, he's sharing his testimony before Jesus, after Jesus. Uh, usually in testimonies, we hear about this in a way of a historical account, a story. This is what I was like before Jesus. This is how I met Jesus. And this is what my life has been since trusting in Jesus. But here, Paul, he does something a bit different. He outlines his testimony in theological terms. He uses an equation of loss and gained what he believed or boasted in before Jesus and how all that changed after Jesus. Have a look at verse 5 to 6. This is his boast. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. These false teachers, to summarize, they were advocating for confidence in the flesh, confidence in this external mark or feature or work in order to be saved. And Paul, he highlights seven things, seven fleshly things that he once boasted in for salvation. He's saying, I had the most reason to be confident in the flesh. And the first four reasons are to do with pedigree, what he was born and raised with. Number one, Paul was circumcised on the eighth day at the right time according to the law. Two, he's in the line of God's people. He's an Israelite. Three, he's in the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Israel, most faithful to the royal line, to Jerusalem, and to the holy temple. Number four, Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was unlike the Jews who couldn't speak Jewish. 
Paul was the real deal. He was the son of Hebrew parents. He spoke the mother tongue. And the last three things are fleshly things to do with performance. What Paul actually did to show his confidence in the flesh. Number five, he was a Pharisee. He joined the strictest sect of Judaism who were devoted to the law. Number six, he was a persecutor. Paul hated the first Christians. He persecuted them. He had this misplaced zeal for God. And finally, Paul was faultless, blameless. He strictly observed all of the outworkings of the law in all aspects of his life. You see, this was Paul's life before meeting Jesus. All those seven qualities, they were in his gain column, in his equation of how to be saved. But listen to verse 7 and Paul's conversion moment. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. You see, when Paul encountered the risen Lord Jesus, when the penny dropped about trusting in Jesus for salvation, Paul's equation on how to be saved changed completely. All those things that he found confidence in, those fleshly things that were in his gain column, circumcision, being an Israelite, so on. When Paul gave his life to Jesus, all those fleshly gains moved to the lost column. He counted it all as lost, loss. They were of no value, no importance. They had no spiritual economy. And verse 8 builds on this even further. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You see, Paul, he widens the scope even more. He counts all things as loss. Anything, you name it. He goes even further. He now counts all things as rubbish. Something that is only good for throwing away. And it's got meanings in the range of garbage, refuge, and even dung and excrement. You see, as Paul accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, everything else is a loss. Things that were once gains were now spiritually bankrupt, now only good for throwing away. All things are counted as loss at that moment of conversion in light of gaining Christ, knowing Christ, verse 8, and the sake of Christ, verse 7. 
in that equation of loss and gain to be saved, the loss column is all things. And the gain column, the only thing to have, to hold, to boast in, is Christ himself. And that's where Paul moves to unpack what he's gained in that moment of conversion, at that moment of trusting in Jesus. And as we continue looking at Paul's testimony, we see what gaining Christ and knowing Christ, what all of that means for him, and why gaining Christ and counting all things as lost is indeed the good news and is God's answer to the equation of how to be saved and why we can rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8 to 11 is actually one long sentence. In the Greek, it's a bit of a verbal maze. But I think in this, Paul outlines three things in relation to gaining Christ. And the first thing is in verse 9. Gaining Christ and justification. Justification is about being declared righteous before God. And this is what verse 9 says. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see, gaining Christ means that on that day of judgment, you're going to be found not just in yourself, but in Jesus. And God's declaration of your righteous standing before him, it doesn't depend on yourself or your own righteousness or you keeping the law, because if that's the case, we're all hopeless and helpless sinners looking toward death and judgment. You see, when you gain Christ, you depend on being found in Christ. You depend on the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus, trusting in that substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, the exchange that we just reflected on in communion, where he took our sin and paid for them on the cross. And he gave us his righteousness, clothing us in his holiness and perfection. And because of Christ, when you stand before God's throne on that day of judgment, God will declare you righteous because you're found in Christ and his righteousness. The second thing about gaining Christ is in verse 10. And it's sanctification, growing in Jesus day by day. Have a look. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. You see, Paul, he moves on from our right standing before God and he moves to what it looks like day by day on the ground. And gaining Christ looks like this. Knowing Jesus, not just knowing the truths of Jesus, but living it out, living out an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus. 
It means living in his resurrection power, not our own strength, but through the power of the Holy Spirit as Christ lives in us through his Spirit. Letting Christ by his Spirit lead, shape and grow us more and more like him. And this isn't a triumphant life in terms of happy days forever. It looks like sharing in Christ's sufferings, serving others, and counting others more significant than yourself. All of those things in the beginning of Philippians 2, even to the point of suffering. That's having the mind of Christ. And the final thing about gaining Christ is in verse 11. We've had justification, sanctification, and now glorification. Or to use the word from Philippians 2, exaltation, looking forward to that final day of resurrection. Verse 11 says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, Paul's loss and gain equation it was all about being saved, it's all about attaining resurrection from the dead. And what he's saying here is that having Christ and only Christ in the gain column, it's the only way to be saved and raised and enjoy life on that last day for eternity. You see, Paul cites his view, it was glorification, being found in glory, being found enjoying life with God forever. And Paul's answer with this sight in mind is gaining Christ, knowing Christ, being found in Christ. That's the only way to attain resurrection from the dead. And because of this, now he looks forward to life for eternity. If you're at Joyce's memorial service, if you've talked to Joyce in the past months, if you've talked to Neville over the past weeks, that was Joyce and Neville's hope and confidence. They gained and they grasped onto Christ and they have that certainty, that confidence of glorification, resurrection, life forever. You see, this is every believer's hope and confidence. Putting Christ into the gain column to be justified, made right with God, to be sanctified, living with the mind of Christ, growing more like him day by day. And finally, to be glorified, to be found on that last day, enjoying life forever in God's new creation. And when we see the goodness of our gains in Christ, it helps us to say no to false teachers, and it causes us to rejoice in Christ and in Christ Jesus alone. Well, as we've come to think about what this passage means for us, I think here we see Paul clearly articulate 
the good news of life in Jesus, what it means to gain Christ, and how we view other things in light of gaining Christ. And we hear Paul's continued chorus, urging us to find joy in Jesus. Well, as we finish our time this morning, I think there's three questions that this passage forces us to ask ourselves. And the first question is this. Have you counted all things as loss to gain Christ? Have you counted all things as loss to gain Christ? Maybe you've been coming to church a few times. Maybe you've come for many, many years. But you've never really made that commitment. Yes, I accept Jesus as Lord and Saviour. And I count other things as loss in order to gain Christ, to see Jesus as the King and Lord and ruler of my life. Or maybe you've made a half commitment. You acknowledge Jesus, you know, you believe the truths of Jesus, but you've never really done that counting all other things as loss to gain Christ. Maybe you've never fully really let Jesus in as King and Lord and ruler of your life. And you know that making a half commitment to Jesus isn't really a commitment to Jesus at all because he demands our lives and all. Have you counted all things as loss to gain Christ? Well, if you haven't done this today, let me challenge you to do the word that Paul keeps repeating here. Count. Consider Paul's equation. Count. Look at the losses and the gains in order to be saved by God on that day of judgment, in order to belong to God's saved and forgiven people, in order to attain life with God forever. Count and consider Jesus, what it means to gain Christ. See how good it is to know Jesus and to be found in him. Have you counted all things as lost to gain Christ? Second thing, second question. How are you going? How are you going in counting all things as lost to gain Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, as most of you are, you've had that moment that Paul had where he came face to face with Jesus. And after seeing how good it is to be found in Christ, he counted all things as loss to gain Christ as Lord and Saviour. Maybe that moment was in the recent past, or maybe it's been decades ago. But counting all things as lost to gain Christ is not a one and done thing. It's an equation that we live out all our days. And I think it's easy over time, over change of seasons in life, over change of circumstances for things to creep up that were once in the lost column and they creep up 
and threaten to take the place of Christ in the gain column. So how are you going today in counting all things as loss to gain Christ? What are things that threaten gaining Christ, valuing Christ, finding your spiritual wealth and salvation in Christ and Christ alone? Maybe it's works. Instead of trusting in Jesus alone, you think, I'm actually a good person. I don't do too many bad things. And to find your confidence over time in your works. Maybe it's rituals, rhythms or patterns. Instead of trusting in Jesus alone, you think, I go to church regularly. I give regularly. I do things here and there. And then slowly over time, you find your confidence in these rituals and patterns and routines instead of trusting in Jesus alone. Maybe it's past faithfulness. Instead of trusting in Jesus alone, you think, I've been a Christian for a long time. I've been faithful to God for a long time. I've done the hard yards. I've served and persevered for a long time. And you think through that, and then you eventually find your confidence for salvation in your past faithfulness instead of in Christ Jesus alone. Maybe it's something else, trusting in having a happy family, trusting in your work status and output, trusting in your financial security, trusting in the faithfulness of your spouse or your parents or your kids, trusting, wanting, valuing something else, anything else, instead of trusting in Jesus alone for salvation. How are you going today in counting all things as loss to gain Christ? What might be the greatest threat in your life? And how can you be actively putting all things in that loss column? As you gain Christ, you know Christ, you be found in Christ, and you treasure Christ all your days. The one who secures your justification, the one who empowers your sanctification, the one who assures you of your right glorification on the last day. Final question. How is your joy in Christ? How is your joy in Christ? You see, the good news of salvation being found in Jesus and gaining Christ, knowing and believing and trusting in the promises of Christ They're not just things to know. They're truths and realities that turn your life upside down. They move you profoundly. They ought to shape your heart. They ought to change your affections. They ought to move us to rejoice in Jesus. 
to find complete satisfaction in him, to adore him, to give him glory. That's why all the Christmas songs we sing are happy songs. They're joyful songs. Because we have a Lord and Saviour who's born in Jesus. And he's just not just a cute, happy baby. He is the one who saves us from sin and death who wins for us life for eternity. Remember, we were dead, and now in Jesus we have life. And that ought to make us rejoice. Does the good news of life in Jesus move you to rejoice in him? Well, if it doesn't, spend time reflecting on the good news of life in Jesus. Spend time at the foot of the manger, the foot of the cross. Consider your future without Jesus, what it'd be like, your plight, where you're heading. And then think of that change of outlook because you have gained Christ. The good news of life in Jesus is one of joy. How is your joy in Christ today? Well, this morning we've seen Paul's loss and gain equation after encountering the risen Lord Jesus. He counts all things as lost, everything, in gaining, knowing, and being found in Christ. And this ought to result in rejoicing Jesus and rejoicing in him alone. Let's pray that we do the same. Father God, we're challenged by uh, Paul as he recounts his response to the good news of life in Jesus. Lord, help us to count all things as loss in light of gaining Christ and being found in him on that last day. Please forgive us, Lord, for the times when we value things above or in competition with Christ in our lives. And as we consider how good it is to be found in Jesus, help that to drive us to rejoice in him, to rejoice In Jesus, our good and gracious Lord and Saviour, the one who wins us life forever. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.